We are finishing up our series. We began a, a series in Jonah three weeks ago. Um, what we know about him from Scripture is that he is a prophet of God in the northern kingdom who follows in the footsteps of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, who were his mentors. Jeroboam II was the king of Israel at that time. He was a wicked king. And Jonah was sent by God to Jeroboam II to prophesy to him that if Israel and the king did not repent, God would judge them. And Jeroboam listens to Jonah. Israel repents. God relents in his judgment. And Jonah gets to see the mercy of God in action as a result of God using him prophetically. And God uses Jonah to extend grace to Israel. Well, God again calls Jonah, but this time it's different. He's not called to the nation of Israel. He's called to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, a pagan, a godless, violent, decadent, immoral, and very brutal, brutal city and nation. Jonah, Jonah is perplexed. Why would God send me to a place like Nineveh? I get Israel. They're the covenant people of God. God loves his covenant people. He's faithful to his covenant people. But why would God send me to a place called Nineveh. And the deep hatred in Jonah's heart towards the Assyrians brings only one response. He runs away from God. He runs away from his responsibility to go to Nineveh. He wants God to extend judgment to the city because he believes they deserve it. It's fine for God to give grace and mercy to Israel, but not towards these unbelieving pagans. That is Jonah's heart. But that's exactly what God wants to do. He wants to extend his mercy in a way that is, that teaches us how broad and vast is the love of God in his heart for all people. But Jonah, Jonah doesn't get it. So what he does is he runs away. But God in his providence, he rescues Jonah with very unusual acts He hurls a storm, he sends a great fish, and he restores him to ministry. And and as we see in chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh, he powerfully preaches, he goes into the city, and revival breaks out. Revival breaks out. And then, now we are in chapter 4. Chapter 4 finishes this very unique book, but it finishes in a way that we would not expect The title of my message is simply, Not Happily Ever After, which is how chapter 4 ends. So let's read Jonah 4 and just follow along with me. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now that word appears five times in the book of Jonah, and it, it is meant to make an impact on us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Now this, at least let's give Jonah some credit. When he was angry with God in chapter 1, he ran away from the presence of God. He wanted nothing to do with God. At least in chapter 4, he's praying to God. Now, it's not exactly the way he should be praying to God, but at least he's communicating with the Lord. 
And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. That's a whole message in itself. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? Father, thank you for the opportunity to once again study your infallible, authoritative, all-sufficient, and inspired Word. Lord, this morning we ask that through Your Word we might hear You speak and we might learn and we might grow. All for Your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. R.T. Kendall says this of Jonah's response. Jonah had such a marvelous revelation of God's mercy and grace to him when he was rescued from the great fish, when he sees revival taking place in Nineveh. So he has this marvelous revelation of God's mercy and grace to him that, humanly speaking, we might expect he would never have a serious problem with God again. For after once seeing God in this extraordinary way in his own life, that should set him up for life. In other words, you've experienced the great outpouring of God's mercy. You should be set for life. You should never, ever have a problem with God again. And, and, and that's our life here. Isn't that right? <laughs> no, it's not right. Kendall goes on to say, Instead, Jonah shows us that when it comes to growing in God's grace, none of us is set up for life. We all have need for continual and perpetual growth in the grace of God. So it is that Jonah's final chapter begins with a most distressing report. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He had a temper tantrum. That is Jonah's problem. So what happened to Jonah? 
you, you would think after such an amazing revival story that ends in, in triumph, he would be ending his life in triumph. But instead, he takes a step backward in his relationship with the Lord. Now remember, a number of commentators, and I would agree with them, think Jonah wrote this post, obviously, down the road. And he wrote this as a lesson for the reader, a lesson to learn to not do what Jonah did. It seems that Jonah had come far in his spiritual journey in chapter 2. He's in the, the belly of the great fish. He calls out to God in his distress. He repents before God. God, in his mercy and in his grace, restores Jonah back to dry land, back to ministry where Jonah is able to go to Nineveh. And yet, with all of this, Jonah is angry with God. Jonah is very much in the same place he began in chapter 1. Now, let's be honest, we all have a similar journey, do we not? We experience the salvation of Christ. We experience His mercy and grace in rescuing us from our own sin and His judgment. And we are, our lives are not the same. And if you remember those first days of being a Christian, this the joy in your heart and life was good and everything was great. And then life reared its head again. And problems come and trials are experienced. And we get angry with God. We complain about our circumstances. How often have we experienced God's overwhelming grace and mercy in a particular situation and verbally we're shouting his praise and yet days or weeks later, bam, it happened to me, it happened to me this week. I was, I, I had a lunch with a, with a a man, um, a pastor from um, a church in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Wonderful, wonderful man, godly guy. And he is um, African-American and he's teaching me and he's really helping me understand um, the African-American culture in the church culture. We spent two hours at lunch just talking about all these things. And it was just, and he, and he loves golf. So there's, there's just two things about this guy I really, really like. And, and so I'm driving home and I'm just rejoicing in the Lord, this new relationship and what God has done. And as I'm driving along, there's no other cars around. There's no other cars around. And all of a sudden I hear this, and my windshield goes, God, I'm out doing your business. And this is how you repay me? We often complain because of some dark providence or disagreement with the Lord's sovereign wisdom in our lives. And of course, Jonah's response here is puzzling, but it's not unusual. Most of us know someone like Jonah who has tasted, if not us, of God's mercy and shortly thereafter becomes angry with God. Well, you know, Jonah finally obeys God by sharing the good news of the gospel with Nineveh and revival happens. And when, and when God does bring this revival, what happens is Jonah opposes God. He opposes God's sovereign wisdom in choosing to relent in his judgment, nor does he celebrate God's grace to sinners. 
And the question we've got to ask this morning is, how does Jonah get here? How do we get there? How do we get from being here on Sunday morning and praising God and singing and worshiping or having this experience of God's mercy to us during the week and we're just so thrilled and we share it with others and we we talk to our spouse about it and then this invisible stone out of nowhere comes and cracks your windshield. And then this complaint just jumps up in your heart. And it wasn't the rock that caused the complaint in my heart. It was the complaint that was living in my heart. The rock just happened to reveal what was there. How did Jonah come to this place? And how can we guard our hearts from doing the same thing? Because Jonah here in this and what we're going to learn in Jonah 4, he hates that God's covenant mercy is extended to anyone other than Israel, God's covenant people. Now remember, my proposition statement from week one has been the proposition statement for week two, week three, and it is again this morning. And that is this, the book of Jonah exists to teach us to obey God's command to share the gospel, trust his sovereignty and evangelism, and celebrate his grace towards sinners and saints. But Jonah's anger reveals something to us and teaches us something. And it reveals three things. It reveals Jonah's self-exaltation. That's the first thing Jonah's anger reveals, his self-exaltation. It reveals his self-righteousness. And it reveals his self-centeredness. Let's look at Jonah's self-exaltation. Verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah exalted his wisdom over God's wisdom. His response to God who relented in his judgment was to get angry with God. God relented in his anger towards the Ninevites and Jonah's anger just explodes towards God. And it explodes in this way, I told you so. I told you, I knew this would happen. It makes no sense why you would send me to Nineveh. Why, why did I have to go through the trial of the storm? Why did I have to go through being in the belly of this great fish? Why did I have to suffer like I did? You were going to do this anyway. What's the point? Jonah was livid. He was livid that God's plan of mercy came to pass. He, he justifies his, his prior conduct in this. This is why I fled. <laughs> I, I fled because you were going to do this anyway. It's why I went to Tarshish. Uh-huh. Yeah. His excuse, making his excuse for his sin, that is not why he fled. He was committed to the judgment of the wicked, even if God wasn't. That's, 
That's what Jonah's in Jonah's heart. He believes he knows better than God what is right. And when God's plan of mercy comes to pass, Jonah just expresses his anger because Jonah knows God's character. Jonah is aware. Jonah saw it happen when he preached repentance to Jeroboam II. And Jonah is aware of, of the, the history of God and Scripture. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, if you, you remember that passage where Moses said that what Jonah is saying here, that the Lord is gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That is who God is. That is the history of God. And in Jonah's mind, that's going to happen. So why did you send me there? He is furious. And the book of Jonah is the Old Testament version of the story of the prodigal son. That's what the book of Jonah is. In chapter 2, like the prodigal son, Jonah repents, returns to the Lord, and is restored back to God the Father. Here in chapter 4, the story of the prodigal son continues on, but not with the younger brother, but with the older brother who was angry with his father for the mercy he showed to the younger son. Jonah is now the older brother who is angry with his father for extending mercy to to someone who doesn't deserve it. Why would you Why would you extend mercy to my younger brother? He took his inheritance. He went and he lived in debauchery. He was immoral. And now he comes back and he wants everything. And you restore it all to him. That was the pride and arrogance of the older brother. Jonah is furious with God for not judging Nineveh. And when God's anger with Nineveh ends, Jonah's is still burning strong. Now, do you see Jonah's attitude in the older brother? The book of... Here's here's what that parable, that story of the prodigal son teaches us. And this is what the book of Jonah teaches us. The very same thing. It's about God's heart of grace and mercy towards sinners. Luke 15 is about the parable of the lost coin. It's about the parable of the lost son. It's about the parable of the lost sheep. It's all about God going after sinners because he's merciful and he's gracious and he's abounding in love and he wants to extend that and he wants us to have the same heart. And yet Jonah exalts his wisdom over God's. God, why would you do this? And God turns the table on Jonah and asks him a very pointed question Do you have any right to be angry at my mercy? Do you have any right? Especially since you've received the riches of my grace, even in your own sin. And Jonah does think he has the right to be angry. That's his arrogance. That's his self-exaltation. And he thinks it so much that we move on to the next point, Jonah's self-righteousness, because Jonah, what does he do? He leaves the city. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. If he had 
understood God's mercy, he would have stayed in the city after this amazing revival. And he would have served those people in helping them to know God. He would have remained among them. Instead, he turns his back on them and the Lord in his sinful anger. If, if he can't get away from the Lord by dying, at least he'll get away from these people. That's his response. And so that is point number two. We see Jonah's self-righteousness. He began his, this chapter by complaining about God. And then in, in spite of God, he abandons Nineveh entirely. God had sent him to Nineveh to preach repentance. Repentance happens. And what does Jonah do? He just runs again. He runs away from God and he finds a hill and he sits on that hill and he overlooks the city. And what is is he doing? He is hoping for God to change his mind and destroy these people like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. That is what Jonah is doing. Look at verse 5 again. He sat under the, the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah is waiting for judgment. Although revival just broke out. He's hoping by his actions, he's hoping by some way to get God to respond by, okay, Jonah, I was wrong. So sorry, buddy. I was wrong. Just wait a minute. The fire is coming. The brimstone is coming. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Please forgive me, Jonah. No. That is not what is happening here. God is not changing his mind. Richard Phillips says this of Jonah. He says, Jonah was not happy when God blessed his preaching with the mass repentance of Nineveh. Instead, he was comically miserable since they did not meet his ethnic and moral requirements for salvation. They were pagans. Undoubtedly, most of their practices were out of accord with Scripture, and their grasp of doctrine was outrageously deficient. Jonah responded as a most determined fundamentalist. He would not associate with the newly saved Ninevites. He would not mingle in their city. He would not share in their worship or participate in ministry with them. Despite the clear evidence that God had accepted Nineveh's repentance, Jonah did not accept them willingly, accepting isolation and needless hardship, all of which he embraced as a sign of his exceptional holiness." Jonah would do his own thing, and his own thing was to watch miserably for signs of their failure and demise. Have you ever heard of somebody famous who is now professing a belief in Christ, and you think, eh, it ain't gonna last. It can't. Do you ever hear? Do you ever feel that way? That's Jonah right here. Jonah's anger is rooted in his self-righteousness. He believed he was better than these pagans. He was fine with proclaiming the truth of God's judgment and repentance to the nation of Israel because they were God's covenant people. These are pagans, and they don't deserve mercy. Yes, he deserved mercy. He deserved mercy when he was wayward because he was a decent guy. He was an Israelite, and he was someone under God's covenant mercy. But who do these Ninevites think they are? How how could they even consider that they should receive mercy? How could God even consider giving them mercy? In his self-righteousness, Jonah Jonah just sees himself better than these people. And so he removes himself from these people. 
And we can do that as Christians. We can remove ourselves from the very world and community that God has placed us in because we subtly think of ourselves as better than those who don't know Christ. And many in, in church history have taken that way too far. It's why monasteries exist. And you see it in, in other, other Christian groups that build their own communities and move outside so that they're not in any way tainted by the sin of the world in which they live in. That's what Jonah is doing here. And so he makes this little shelter for himself to sit outside under the scorching sun. He builds the shelter, but it's obviously, it's inadequate to protect him from the scorching sun. And God uses that to show him how weak and incapable he is. Because if you look at the, the next verse, starting in 6, and that is point 3, Jonah's self-centered is, God is still being merciful to Jonah. Even in the midst of Jonah's self-righteousness, God is once again providing another lesson to Jonah that Jonah would learn about God's steadfast love and mercy to himself. God's still being faithful to Jonah. Because look at verse 6. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Well, we just read in chapter five, in verse 5 <clears throat> that he sat under it in the shade, this little booth that he made. Obviously, this booth was just worthless. Jonah is not a carpenter. He's a prophet. And he didn't do a very good job. And God, in his mercy, <clears throat> excuse me, appoints a plant. This is God. This is, and this is, again, what we're learning in the book of Jonah is the, the sovereign work of God, this, the the power of God. God uh, hurls a storm at Jonah. He appoints a great fish. Now he appoints a plant. And then he appoints a worm. And then he appoints an east wind. God is doing a lot of appointing here. And it's all to teach Jonah about the mercy and grace of God. So point three is, we've looked at Jonah's self-exaltation, his self-righteousness. And now Jonah's self-centeredness in verses 6 through 10. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on his head. And the head of Jonah said he was faint. And God appointed a stone for Larry Malament's car. And he asked that he might die. I didn't ask that I might die. It is better for me to die than to live. And God speaks to Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry about this plant, Jonah? You didn't, you didn't create the plant. You didn't grow the plant. Jonah, you didn't make the plant perfect that it would provide shade, did you? No. Jonah, you didn't do anything. You have no right. I'm the one who has the right to do that. Throughout Jonah's story, we have seen God's wonderful sovereignty over creation. And it helps us to understand how, how much God loves his creation. Not only that he uses his creation, but he loves us. 
that he would go to these, <clears throat> these great lengths. <clears throat> Excuse me. He would go to these great lengths to bring back a lost sheep. God went to those great lengths for you. If you're a, a believer, if you are trusting in Christ right now, if you put your faith in his death and resurrection, if you trust him, those are the lengths he went to, for you to bring you to him. And Jonah just doesn't get it. He doesn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. He doesn't see God's display of power and glory and love. And God has done all this to capture Jonah's attention as to who he is. So God kindly appoints this plant. And he shades, he shades Jonah. But what happens? Jonah, just a little earlier, is exceedingly angry. Now he's exceedingly happy. He is just thrilled that this plant... <clears throat> Do you think he even thought that God is the one who appointed the plant? No, he just thought, oh, plant, great. It grew up overnight. Don't know where it came from, but cool. I got a plant. And then the next, the next night, the next day, God sends a worm. And God quickly changes Jonah's circumstances. And in his providence, again, God uses nature to discipline him. Jonah's response is, I want to die. Now remember in chapter 1, that was Jonah's response. He runs from God. God hurls a great storm. And Jonah just says, hey, you know what? It's just better to die. Throw me overboard. And then again at the beginning of chapter 4, Jonah is angry with God as he has been before. And so he says, it is better for me to die than to live. And now he says, and he asks that he might die. And it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah, Jonah is a weak man in many respects. This is the third time he's desired death. He's, in his mind, suicide is the way out. It's the way out of God's presence. It's the way out of the circumstances. It's the way out of the troubles. It's the way out of, it's just, I just, I don't want to deal with life like this anymore. I want out. God's not, God's not letting that happen. God's not letting him change the circumstance. Escape is not the right choice. Jonah had something to learn, and God was speaking to him through these circumstances. And he does the same for us. He uses circumstances to teach us. Sometimes they're great circumstances, like the plant. God blesses us. And sometimes they're not such great circumstances, like a scorching east wind. God is working in Jonah's life. He's asking Jonah questions. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He's asking him questions. The second question he's asked him, second time he's asked him that same question, do you have a right to be angry? He's still trying to get to Jonah's heart. He's asking Jonah, listen, Jonah, which, which do you prefer? Let me tell you, Jonah, what I prefer as the Lord. I prefer mercy over judgment. That's what I prefer. So much so, I sacrificed my own son by sending him into this filthy, wicked, sin-scarred world to save sinners like you. Jonah, that's what I prefer. You prefer judgment. I prefer mercy. Jonah, I'm teaching you something. I'm teaching you about my grace and my mercy. 
And all you do is think about yourself. You are self-centered. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said to him, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And now look at verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah doesn't pity the Ninevites. This is Jonah at his worst. He's experienced more joy from the plant than he did from the mercy of God towards Nineveh. And when Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin in In Luke 15, he closes with these words. And this is what the Lord is trying to teach Jonah. And he's trying to teach us. Because when we read the story of Jonah, it's not just about Jonah. It's about us. It's it's about you and me. We all can be like Jonah. We all have been like Jonah at times. This is what the Lord wants us to learn. Luke 15, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's the heart that God wants Jonah to have. Jonah had the right message, but the wrong heart. So what's our application? God's heart for Jonah and his heart for Nineveh are at the center of these four chapters, this story. That's what we are to learn from the book of Jonah. It is an Old Testament story with a New Testament ring. It's about the gospel, the good news that God loves his creation. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God so loved Nineveh, he sent Jonah. God so loved the world, so loved us, he sent Jesus Christ. God's heart for Jonah and his heart for Nineveh are at the center of this story. Yes, he sends a great storm, he sends a great fish, he sends a great, a gracious plant, a destructive worm, a scorching sun, all to teach Jonah about his love and mercy and judgment and what that all looks like. God sent us Jesus Christ, the greatest sign of all, that we might see through his suffering and death and resurrection the mercy that God extends to us. And God wants us to learn in this story, what do we think about the lost community around us? Are we more like Jonah or are we more like God? The book of Jonah has some questions for us to answer this morning. The first one is this. Is there anything temporal that you care more about, like the plant, than eternal souls of the lost community you live in? What what do you care about more? Think about, and, and the temporal thing for Jonah is the plant, but what's temporal for us? What do we care more about? And there are a myriad of things you could, you could talk about. Do we care about our homes more and upkeeping our houses? Do we care about our vacations more? Do we care about our 
our world around us, in our jobs, in our cars, in our hobbies, and whatever, you name it. Do, do those things, do those things extend further than your care for what is eternal, the souls of the community around you that do not know Christ? The second question is, do you view some people as undeserving of God's mercy? Do you desire judgment more than mercy for them? And I'm sure every person in this room thinks, no, absolutely not. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever thought, just wait, just wait until that actor or that politician stands before God and has to answer for their sins? I'm wearied of hearing them publicly and their anti-biblical talk, their unbiblical lifestyles. They're arrogant. They're wicked. And I just can't wait for their future judgment. It doesn't matter whether it's Harry Reid or some actor that you just think, they have no idea what they're talking about. Just wait. God forbid that should happen. We, we should have a heart. We should rejoice like angels rejoice when a sinner comes to faith in Christ, regardless of what their history is. In the early hours of October 16, 1946, Lutheran minister Henry Gorecki paid a visit to the members of his small congregation in Nuremberg, Germany. This was no ordinary congregation since the men he was visiting were about to be executed for committing the vilest crimes imaginable. One by one, Gorecki walked with his congregants to the gallows. When the noose was placed over the first man's head and he was asked for his last words, he gave testimony to his faith in Jesus Christ. This was an SS officer in Nazi Germany in World War II. And this is what he says. A man who sent literally thousands upon thousands to their death in concentration camps. I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. His name was Joachim von Ribbentrop. Until the previous year, he had been a foreign minister of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. How would that make you feel? How would it make you feel if you hear of somebody who was convicted of the crime of being a pedophile? And then you hear their testimony. And you think, they don't deserve it. No, they don't. They don't deserve it. And I know we would never put ourselves in their category, but we don't deserve it either. We don't deserve the mercy of God. Is there someone you believe is too far gone to be saved? Is there someone you believe in your family or in your community that you, or at work, that you just think, that's just, there's no way they are coming to faith in Christ? 
Brothers and sisters, if there was any place that was too far gone to be saved, it would have been Nineveh. And that was Jonah's thought. They're too far gone. But it wasn't God's. And all of these questions bring us back to the purpose of Jonah's story. It's more than having the message of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have to have the heart of the gospel. So that we are inside, out in our community, we're not looking at them like Jonah looked at them. We're looking at them like God looks at them. That's what we should learn from the book of Jonah. Let me close with this. Sinclair Ferguson says this. The closing chapter of the story of Jonah is indeed enigmatic. It may well leave us asking the question, whatever did become of him, of Jonah? We do not really know. The story is left unfinished. I mean, look how it ends. He says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? It ends with a question. And, and Jonah doesn't answer. There's no answer. And, and that 120, it's not children. It, it's those who are just morally don't know right from wrong. That, that's what that is looking at there. And God, look, God cares about even the cattle. He cares about his creation. And this story ends with a question. It ends in a riddle. Like, okay, so, so where do we go from here? H- how do we answer that question? Because Jonah's not answering it. Well, the reason is, and this is what Sinclair Ferguson says, the story is left unfinished, but in fact, that is the whole point of its writing. We have examined it as a piece of biography set at a given place and time in history, but it is more than that. It is also a parable. It forces us to contemplate our personal destiny. It carries no conclusion because it summons us to write the final paragraph. It remains unfinished in order that we might provide our own conclusion to its message. Do we pity the lost around us. That's how we want to finish the story. For you are Jonah. I am Jonah. We recognize ourselves in the story of this man's life. We stand together in need of the mercy of God to enable us to be obedient to his commands and to live to the praise of his glorious grace. And that's why we exist. The Westminster Catechism says, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, we want to glorify God and we want to enjoy Him. And I want the community around us to enjoy God forever as well. Father, thank You for saving us. And thank You for giving us stories like this to remind us of what You have created us for and called us to. And Lord, we ask that You would help us to have a heart of the gospel to our community around us. Lord, let us not end like Jonah. Let us end like the Lord. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.